0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him?
1: Episode 283. Does the Bible teach that God is a Trinity? Cole Tuggy Dialogue. Part two. At this juncture in our dialogue slash debate, we have finished discussing the first chapter of the Gospel according to John, and now it's my turn to pick a text.
0: Let's just move on and let the audience kind of digest what we're we're talking about. And I, I guess, in fairness, <laughs> I I gave a, a passage. Maybe you can. I don't want to dominate and, and give a bunch of passages, but maybe you can, you know, exegete one or or give one, and I can try to interact with
1: it. I guess I would just pick uh, the Unitarian's favorite from the same book, you know, John 17, one through 3. This is the NRSV. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is just explicitly saying our theology. We think the Father is the only true God. And it's important to not miss that there are two claims there and not one. This is just how only statements work. And uh, I have lectures online where I go into how you analyze this in logic. But just briefly, it's saying that the Father has the status true God, or as we would say, is fully divine literally divine not just similar to god in some sense but no he's he has the divine essence he has all the divine attributes he's not a so-called god he's he's truly god and also no one else has that status that's what it means to say he's the only true god so this looks to us like it's incompatible with any trinity theory the trinity theory has three each of whom is true god right true god from true god the nicene creed no, there's only one true God. That's the Father, and eternal life is knowing Him and Jesus.
0: Right, and again, I think at this point you're making a false dilemma that because it says only true God, that must mean that Jesus Christ cannot share that oneness with God in essence. I think because that you've got the word, "This is eternal life," that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I don't think that that equivocates one way or the other that Jesus is not necessarily the only true God, just because God the Father is listed there as the only true God. Again, I think this is talking about the difference in their person or their function.
1: You're leaving out the words, the only, Dr. Cole. If, if it just said uh, the Father is true God, that'd be one thing, but it says the Father is the only true God.
0: You could take that as, as opposed to other false gods, of their so-called gods, you know, the Canaanite gods, pagan gods, the in in the Hellenistic audience that John is writing to, it could be the 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 Roman gods and goddesses and their pantheon as opposed to the only true God and Jesus Christ. I don't think that it necessarily means that Jesus is not the only true God. It just means that they are two distinct persons who have different functions. The Father is the one who sent Jesus. Eternal life comes through Jesus. Jesus accomplished the work the Father gave him to do. How did Jesus have that same glory with Him before the world existed? How did they share the same glory if they're not the yes, same? Yes, I think.
1: Yeah, I think if you read farther into the chapter, this is the Jewish habit of talking about things that are predestined as if they've they've either always been or if they're currently happening and not something future. So what they do is to express how uh, unchangeable these future events are. They move them backward in time, either to the present or to the past. I think in this book, you know, he says before Abraham was, I am he, I am, and he tells you in chapter four what he means when he says, I am he, he means he's the Messiah. So, yes, I think he had glory in God's presence in eternity in the sense that God always intended to glorify him like you're going to see at the end of the book. But So, um, it's not not a literal
0: existing with God's glory before the world, it's in God's mind, it was kind of something that he viewed would happen. Repeat that. That's something I, I need to hear again.
1: Yes. Let me look farther down. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's foreknowledge in in God's plan, basically. Yeah, later on he says, you've loved me before the foundation of the world. I take it it's the same idea there, down in verse 24. But look, uh, this is a man you have to keep that in mind constantly. This is a son that was born to Mary. He's not the first man. He wasn't around before the world was created. But look, even if he was, you don't get a triune God out of this, right? I have to admit, it's frustrating. It's frustrating for you to not understand how much is being asserted here. Donald Trump is probably going to be impeached soon, but as we record this, he is the only true president of the United States. And because that's true, then nobody else is a true president of the United States, right? He's the only one. That's how you assert his uniqueness in having that status. This says the Father is the only true God. How else would you express my Unitarian view other than saying it that way? It's frustrating to, to, to have someone just spin it off as, well, okay, it says he's true God, but maybe there are others who are true God. Well, you just ignore the word only. So, I don't have a lot more to say about this other than it seems to say all I would want it to say as a Unitarian Christian.
0: I guess my question would be in verse 5, did Jesus not have glory with God before the world existed? In eternity past, did they not share glory? And if they share glory, isn't that sharing some type of essence that's worthy to be worshiped?
1: No, not not in the sense of being fully divine. That doesn't require that reading. Uh, Pre-existence really is not really to the point of the argument between us tonight because we're talking about does the Bible teach that God is the Trinity? If Jesus pre-existed, even if Jesus always existed, how do you get a triune God out of that? It's not clear how you do, which is why you have all these early subordinationist guys like Origen and uh, Tertullian, for instance. They do believe in pre-existence, but they don't have an equally divine logos. They have a second God who's less divine but still existed before the world began. So we really shouldn't go down just to talk about pre-existence. We should talk about how would you get from the new Testament to this tripersonal God idea, three persons, each equally divine and somehow God is all of them put together. I don't think we should focus on pre-existence. That would be a different debate.
0: Well, I think it's important because pre-existence does argue the fact that Jesus is divine and shares an eternal quality with God. Would you not agree?
1: Pre-existence just means existed before his human career, like before his conception, I guess. Or maybe you want to say it's pre-existence before the Genesis creation. To be God, you have to be eternal. So I don't even know how we get just from bare pre-existence to eternal existence, much less essential eternal existence. Even if you had that, you'd have to get the other divine attributes to prove full deity. Pre-existence is consistent with the deity of Jesus, sure, but it's also consistent with Jesus being a lesser deity, which is what lots of these early guys thought. So I don't really want to go there because we're not discussing pre-Nicene subordinationist theologies.
0: Right. I guess it's just important to me to assert that Jesus is actually called god in the scriptures and i think you made a statement that only the father is god and that there's a few smattering of scriptures you said in your introduction that would refer to jesus as god and those are debatable but i think it's an important topic because it does determine you know are we worshiping a created man through whom we have faith or are we worshiping the eternal son who is and shares the same essence as god but is distinct from the father I guess, to me, it's just an important point.
1: Yeah, we can switch to the worship topic if you want to talk about that. I have a lot to say about that. And we, we don't have to turn there and read the whole thing, but we, we can discuss this topic of worship, I think, without—we can go to the text in detail if you want, but the two texts I have in mind are Revelation 4 and 5, and then Philippians 2, and to me, these are the clearest representations of the religious worship given to Jesus in the New Testament. I think it's presupposed in the New Testament. You know, a lot of times in the Gospels, it'll say that someone worshipped Jesus, but it's probably better translated as bowed to him or did him homage, you know, like you would do to a king like the Messiah. Like the three wise men, for instance. I don't think they thought that baby was God. I think they thought that baby, like they said, was destined to be a king. And so it says they, quote, worshipped him, but it's just proscuneo. They just bowed to him. But anyway, Revelation 4, you have a vision heaven of God on his throne. And he's worshipped on the grounds that he's the one creator. And we know who this is. This is the one called Yahweh in the Old Testament, just like visions of God on his throne back, you know, in Isaiah. Uh, And then, you know, in the New Testament, this one is called our Father in Heaven, the one true God, and so on. And then in chapter 5, basically, they bring in this lamb who's been slain. They bring him into the divine throne room. And he is worshipped as well, but not because he's God or the eternal creator, but rather because of his service to God. That's what the worshipers say. And so you have two objects of worship. You have God, and then you have Jesus. And the justification that's presupposed for the worship of Jesus is that God has exalted him to his right hand, which is a point that the New Testament really emphasizes. You see this repeatedly in Acts, for instance. And so, to me, there isn't a concern there about somehow, by definition, worshiping a creature is idolatry. They don't seem to be worried about that. Paul says, and again, he's talking about the exaltation of Jesus in fulfillment of Psalm 110.1. I think that's what's in the background uh, in Paul's mind and, and, again, in Luke and Acts. He says that, uh, you know, Jesus, after his exaltation, is worshiped to the glory of God the Father. Their idea seems to be that you worship God by worshiping, or if you want to say, honoring the son of God, the glory as it were flows on through the son to the father. So the father is the ultimate object of worship. They don't seem to be worried about, you know, um, a horror of accidentally worshiping a creature instead of the creator. They think that worshiping this man who's been exalted gives honor to the creator who exalted him. The exaltation entails that you're supposed to honor him in this way.
0: Or it could be that they view Jesus as equal in essence with God and didn't have a problem with him receiving worship, but distinct in function. He's the resurrected Christ. He's the exalted Christ because in the function of how the three persons work, he's the one who fulfilled the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection. Uh, He's the lamb lion who's worthy to take the scroll. So I, I don't think that there's anything in the Revelation 4 and 5 that would make it sound like God is authorizing worship of Jesus and therefore because God is authorizing the worship of Jesus Jesus is therefore inferior to God and he's worshiped as a as a less than god is that is that kind of what you're arguing
1: Well I mean look we know he's inferior to God in respect of God is essentially immortal and Jesus was able to be killed What you see in Revelation 5 is not what you would expect to see if the author's view is that you can only worship Jesus because he has the divine essence and the reason is uh, they give the reason for, it says, singing a new song to him. It says, for you were slaughtered and by your blood, you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests serving our God. Right. So even in saying that they're distinguishing him from God. He's not God. We know who the lamb is, right? He's the son of God.
0: Right, they're distinguishing him from the Christ. Father as a distinct person, but they're not saying that he's inferior or that he's less than or that he's subordinate. There's nothing in that text that would lend you to think that just because he fulfilled the cross and won our salvation through his resurrection as the slaughtered lamb, that he's not fully God. He's distinct from the Father. Well, again,
1: Paul teaches in about three places that, that God is immortal, and I take it that he's essentially immortal because... You know, what would God's life depend on that you could take away God's life? You couldn't drain his blood or take away his oxygen or hit him with a nuclear bomb. God's immortal. Jesus died. So, boom, there's your difference in divine attributes right there. It's just presupposed. I mean, look, to to say that uh, he's just distinguishing the Father from the Son within the triune God, I understand that's where you're coming from. But what I'm saying is that this passage can be understood in a first-century context without bringing in these later concerns. The later concerns are this idea of a tripersonal God and this idea that just by definition, religious honor that's given to a creature is idolatry or or something like that. It's just not here. It's not in this writing.
0: But you seem to think that Jesus is basically receiving glory and honor as the, um, the radiance of God's glory, but not equal in glory to the Father. Because I'm going to ask you, like, Hebrews 1.3.
1: Essence just doesn't come into it. I mean, it just, it says that he's being honored because of his service to God, basically. Essence just isn't cited okay, he- here. He- Hebrews 1,
0: three, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God mm-hmm. and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe yep. by the word of his power. That term radiance appears nowhere else in the Bible. And it basically means an effulgence or a shining forth. It's more than just Jesus reflects God's glory. Like, we can reflect God's glory. It means that Jesus actually is exact radiation of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of that. He's the overflowing, visible, physical expression of the invisible God. He's his very nature and essence.
1: Until you get to the essence part, you're saying things that Unitarian Christians like me agree with. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and... If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, Jesus is the greatest revelation of God. This Jesus, the same guy who's a man. And so, so just Jesus by definition, is, is a creature. Jesus is the greatest
0: revelation of God, but he is not God.
1: Yes. Now, he could be called God, but, you know, I, I think you have to make a distinction here. You have to make a distinction between monotheism and monotheosism. Right. So, monotheism is that there's exactly one God. There's only one God. There aren't two gods. And I think monotheism is true monotheosism is a stupid word that I made up that means there's only one who could be called God. And that is false according to the Bible, because Satan is called the God of this world. In one passage, Jesus in John 10 argues that those to whom the Word of God came can be called gods. We know that the members of the Divine Council in the Old Testament are referred to as gods. God is called the greatest among the gods in various Old Testament passages. So, Monotheism, true. There's only one God. That's talking about ontology. Monotheosism, that's false. That's saying, hey, this word can only apply to one being. It sounds like a a
0: semantic game. You're basically saying that there is only one God, in essence, who is the Father, and anytime somebody else in the scripture is called a God or God, then they can be called that appellation, they can be given that name, but that doesn't necessarily mean they share the same essence. So therefore, there is no Trinity. Yep. Is, that, is that what you're saying?
1: No, that last part doesn't follow just from the grammatical points alone, no. But I am saying that beings other than God can be called God. I mean, since we're in Hebrews 1, we can look down at verse 8, where he's quoting Psalm 45. He says, Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever etc., etc. Therefore, verse 9, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. So there are two who are being referred to as God here. He says this is a prophecy about the son. Originally, this was about a king, it seems. A king was being addressed as God, if that's the right translation, your throne, O God. Some, some say it should be translated as God is your throne forever. Put that aside. If the translation is right here, then both in Psalm 45 and in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, someone other than God is being called God. And this other one has a God. You know who else has a God in the New Testament? Jesus. He tells you several times in Revelation, he refers to my God. He's talking about the Father. He refers to the Father as my God and your God in John chapter 20. We know he's not God because he has a God over him. The God of the Bible, by definition, doesn't have anyone over him. He's the top level.
0: And and again, I would say as a Trinitarian, what you're doing is you're confusing the essence with the function, that Jesus in his earthly incarnation related to his father and worshipped his father as a good Jewish man would that grew up in monotheism, but that doesn't necessarily prove because Jesus calls God his God that he does not share the same essence with God.
1: It's not that he calls God his God, it's that he has a God. I mean, it's, it's not the point about calling someone else God. God could call someone else God. God could call Satan God or, you know, judges or angels. He could call them gods. No, it's not that. It's that, right? Uh, like Paul refers to in Ephesians, he talks about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a point about language. It's It's that, yeah, God is the God of me and you and also the God of the Lord Jesus. When the Trendy's podcast returns, Dr. Cole asks me a pastoral question.
0: So let me ask you a pastoral question, and I know you're, you're not—are you, you, mm-hmm. you in pastoral ministry? Do you deal with—or is it more philosophy and—
1: No, I occasionally will teach Sunday school or something, but I'm not a pastor.
0: So let, let's say, for example, oh, about 12 years ago, a man came to my church, and he was listening to our preaching, and he was interested, and he wanted to set up an appointment with me and come sit down in my office. And he sat down, and the first thing he said out of his mouth was, can I be a member of your church if I don't believe Jesus is God? He says, I believe Jesus is God's son, but I don't believe Jesus is God. Can I be a member of your church? And of course, you know, as a Trinitarian who believes in the deity of Christ, we we had to unpack that. Like bottom line, how does your theology give you assurance of salvation with Jesus being a mere man and Messiah, but not actually God? Like pastorally speaking. And, and, and I guess unpack that for me as far as how the rubber meets the road in your personal experience of salvation and how you relate to the three persons of the Trinity.
1: I mean, in my personal experience of salvation, I was born again and baptized in a uh, Bible oriented charismatic church. And then I went to a Bible church, which was very anti charismatic. Then I went to vineyard churches. And, uh, you know, my experience was that generally we avoided the Trinity. It almost never was preached on as such. We didn't recite the creeds. The only time I remember it coming up would be we sang the doxology and it ended God in three persons, blessed Trinity. I remember thinking, hmm, what's that? I wonder. But I mean, I just assumed everybody knows what this is. The authorities, the smart people, the pastor, the seminary graduates, they must understand all this. It must make sense. I mean, my experience is typical. People don't look into this until the subject of the dastardly cults comes up, and then uh, you know, how, how, what's wrong with these guys? Why can't they just recognize what all the other denominations recognize? Again, I didn't really—it didn't really make sense to me, but uh, it didn't really bother me that it didn't make sense to me, and I just would say stuff like, "Hey, why would you expect the transcendent source of everything to make sense to our puny, finite little minds?" And maybe God is one in three, and, you know, who's to say what, what that even means? You should just accept it. I mean, come on, study Bible notes. They're telling you it's right there in the Bible. What could be wrong with this? Sure. But I see it as a clash between later small-c Catholic traditions and actual New Testament theology. The way that professional theologians and, and I think seminary-trained people tend to look at the New Testament is they think the New Testament is primitive, primitive in its conceptions and primitive in its language. And in a way, they think the New Testament writers are kind of confused. Like, they think Jesus kind of overturned their world somehow, and they didn't quite know what to do with that, and it took them hundreds of years to process it properly. And thank goodness they finally figured out this language of three persons in one essence. Yeah, but it's just, you know, it's so hard to come up with an interpretation that isn't three gods or just three personalities of one God— I don't know exactly why you think your view isn't three gods because it has to be a universal essence because it's different ones who are having it and sharing a universal essence doesn't make you a single example of that essence. So me and you and Marlon share human nature equally, but we're not one man, we're three different men. So if the father, son, and spirit, each one of them alone has all the divine attributes, it looks like each one individually has what's sufficient for being God. But anyway, I just, I don't see how you get that out of the Bible, that there are three even who have all the divine attributes, much less that there's a God who's tripersonal. But I think you were asking me about assurance of salvation. I mean, look, you, you look at the preaching in Acts, and it preaches Jesus as God's Messiah, a man accredited to you by signs and wonders that God did through him among you. And, you know, you should believe he's the Messiah. He's who he said he was. And God vindicated his claims. By raising him and now exalting him. And, you know, that's what I believed when I was eight years old or going on eight years old. And that's what I still believe. I just don't have this extra theoretical baggage on top of it now, which is that God is three persons in one essence. So, I mean, my trust in God has been the same. I just would say that, you know, before when I was an evangelical Trinitarian, I would read the Bible and I would think that Jesus was this man and God was somebody else, which is what you see, you know, maybe most obviously in the synoptics, but I think pretty obviously too in John, once you focus on the clear passages and in Paul, you have Jesus and then you have God and God's somebody else. And God says, this is my beloved son. They have this interpersonal relationship. Jesus puts his trust in God. God empowers him and commissions him and so on. And yeah, there's difference in function But it's not that that tells me that they have to be different in essence. It's just that it's quite explicit that Jesus is a man and the Father is the one true God. So the kinds are man and God. So that's why I think they're a man and a God. I don't think it causes me any worries about my salvation. This is
0: often used in evangelicalism of Jesus being the God-man or the God-man.
1: Right. I don't use that because the New Testament doesn't do that. I mean, look, just by being a man, you're by definition part of God's creation. By definition, you're part of God's creation. The background assumption that we all have, and I think you see this assumption also in Matthew and Luke, but I mean, it's in all the New Testament writers. We think that when a person is born, when there were, and there comes to be a new person, a new human being, they come into existence either at or maybe a little bit after conception. And so that's what Matthew and Luke are assuming about Jesus when they referred to, you know, that which is begotten within Mary, that which is conceived in her. That's when they think he began to exist, because they think he's a man. That's how it works with men.
0: Right, in the flesh, in his incarnation. But I would say that Jesus has always existed, and he didn't subtract anything. He just added humanity to his divinity that he already had. Yeah,
1: well, the two natures theories is another can of worms. If I could just say it in 30 seconds, if the human nature is a man, then I understand how there's a man there. But if the human nature is just a body and soul and that's not a man, then I don't understand why an eternal divine person, which is mysteriously somehow combining with a body and soul, I don't understand why that would make that eternal divine person a man. So, there's a concern there about the humanity of Jesus. The New Testament is very emphatic that Jesus is a real man, not just an apparent man.
0: Right. And I agree with that, that the docetics of the early church, that Jesus just appeared as a man. Right. Let me ask you a couple other questions just for the for the sake of people that have asked me, because when they found out that I'm uh, debating a Unitarian, the two questions they asked me, number one, mm-hmm. would you consider yourself evangelical? Number two, would you consider yourself to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? And, and, and those are probably just questions you get a lot of times just for my personal education and the listeners, um, those two questions.
1: Yes, I do consider myself an evangelical. I did a podcast on this on the Trinity's podcast with Kermit Zarley, who would also say that he's an evangelical. And if you look at the standard, what is it, like a five-part definition, uh, Bible orientation, being focused on uh, personal salvation, uh, authority of scripture and things like that. Yes, I was and am an evangelical and changing my theology and my Christology didn't change the things that make me an evangelical. Now, the evangelicals can decide if they want to cast me out, and they can just decide that you can't be an evangelical and not a Trinitarian, and I can't do anything about that. But going by the standard definitions, yes, I am an evangelical. No, I don't believe in inerrancy. I don't believe in inerrancy because I trust that we do have good manuscripts of the New Testament Gospels, for instance, and I think there are irreconcilable points in them. And then you can't be an inerrantist as described like in the Chicago inerrancy statement. I still have a high view of Scripture. I think Scripture is the norm for faith and practice. I don't go along with this kind of recent American evangelical obsession of inerrancy defined in that 1978 statement way. I haven't agreed with that for some time just purely based on reading the New Testament and trying to be intellectually honest with it. But that didn't really have anything to do with my being Unitarian. It doesn't depend on that kind of thing. If, if uh, well, one passage says one donkey, another passage says two donkeys, and it can't be both, that's just sure. not going mean, to come into well, Christology I, or Trinity.
0: Right. And I don't want to get on left field as far as we well, have talked about inerrancy, hypostatic union. You know, there's a lot of things that we've gone on tangents with. And I don't know, Marlon, how we're doing on time as far as the conversation.
2: Yeah, we actually, uh, time just expired. So, okay, yeah, you guys are right on time once again.
1: When the Trinity's podcast returns, our closing statements.
0: Yeah, I would just assert again. I mean, I don't want to reiterate what I said at the beginning, that I, I do believe that there is one God in essence and being. And within that one God, there are three distinct persons who are co-equal and co-eternal, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I do believe that the scripture is very clear that according to John's prologue, in the gospel, as well as a lot of Johannine or, or, or the gospel of John writing, as well as what you see in Paul and other places, uh, that Jesus has always existed as the eternal Son of God. Uh, yet Jesus is a distinct person from the Father, yet they share intimate fellowship with one another. Jesus is fully and absolutely God. Uh, the eternal Word became flesh at a point in time in history, and Jesus is the unique Son who is God. At the end of John's gospel, Kind of like a bookend in John 20:28, 20, uh, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas knew Jesus was a man. Uh, he saw Jesus eat and sleep and get tired and sweat and experience all the things that humans experience. And yet Thomas makes that profound confession that Jesus is not only his Lord, but his God. And notice that Jesus doesn't correct him. Uh, Jesus doesn't stop and say, now, Thomas, you're going too far. Only God, the Father's God. You're making me equal to God. You're confessing me as God. Don't do that. I'm just an exalted man. I was created by God. I came to earth as a human, uh, maybe even a superhuman. I can do some really cool miracles, but but don't you dare call me God. Uh, Jesus doesn't correct Thomas because Jesus is absolute deity. Paul echoes this in Colossians 2.9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And I think that's been the message of the Gospel of John uh, from the very beginning. And Thomas was a good Jewish man. And he knew the powerful confession of the Old Testament Shema. Deuteronomy 6, he would have recited, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And so only God the Father, Yahweh, was God and Lord that they would understand in the Shema. And only he deserved absolute worship. And so when Thomas, as a good Jewish man who knew his Shema, knew his Old Testament, confessed Jesus to be Lord and God, he's saying that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the Lord to be worshipped because he is equal with God. We didn't have time to talk about the Holy Spirit being fully God, uh, but there are some passages in Acts and other places that do Affirm that the uh, the Spirit is also fully God, but distinct in person. And so, I know we didn't have a chance to get to a lot of different scriptures. Um, I do appreciate the the dialogue with Dr. Tuggy. That's the first time I've ever interacted with him, and um, he's been gracious. I feel like we've hopefully been able to listen to each other. We may not agree at all, but I pray it's been edifying to where our audience clearly knows where we come from, and uh, we've been able to tackle some of these difficult issues. And so, I appreciate. His willingness. And um, I have to make a confession. Um, I'm new to this. I don't often engage in a lot of apologetic debates. Um, I have my own podcast and deal with a lot of issues related to um, Reformed theology and other things, but this is kind of new territory for me. So I don't have as much experience as Dr. Tuggy, but I hope that um, I was faithful to the biblical text and uh, faithful to, to the scriptures. And so that's that's my closing statement.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, again, thank you, Marlon, for setting this whole thing up and hosting it. and thank you, Dr. Cole, for the dialogue and the debate. Uh, I do appreciate it. I think it's a really important topic. I mean the debate to me is is somewhat typical of interacting with evangelical Christians on this. They tend to not have super developed views about the Trinity, but they want to focus really on the deity of Christ. And that's kind of a whole nother discussion. Uh, we could talk about that at great length. Briefly, my view is that Jesus is presented as the Son of God who has some obvious limitations that God doesn't have. And it's explicit that he's a real man. I don't think this traditional incarnation theory is actually supported in the New Testament. There are really only a couple of passages that even sound like incarnation in the Bible, uh, mainly John 1 and Philippians 2. And if you look at them very carefully, I don't think that they do teach that, you know, he took on a complete human nature, body and soul, enter into a mysterious union with it, and so on, so that he's both God and man, one Christ and two natures. I don't think that's taught by the New Testament. It'd be a more complicated book if it was evangelicals, to the extent that they're Bible-oriented, are what is lamented frequently by Trinitarian theologians. They like to say among themselves that ordinary Christians are practically Unitarian in their everyday spirituality and even in most pulpit preaching. And this is true for most Bible-focused Protestants, but in my view, it's a good thing, not a bad thing. And the reason it's a good thing is because we don't actually read about a triune God in the Bible, but we do read about the Father, who is the only true God. I think these non-Trinitarians are correct. The elite-level speculators in the seminaries and so on need to catch up with them in terms of actually following New Testament thinking about God and His Son. A new stage of Reformation will break out when many of these non-Trinitarians in the pews of officially Trinitarian churches wake up and realize that their church's creed actually mismatches the Bible and even that church's spiritual life. I'm not sure I've heard a clear articulation of a Trinity theory from Dr. Cole. He's got three different ones. Each one's God. I'm not sure why he really thinks they're the same God, because given that they're distinct, sharing the same universal nature shouldn't make them one anything other than just equal in status. And he hasn't, I think, demonstrated the Trinity from the Bible, showing how you go from the Bible, which talks about the Father, there's God, and then there's the Son of God and the Spirit of God, He hasn't shown how you get from that to this idea of a tripersonal God. You know, I just think the Reformation hasn't gone far enough. I think some of the Reformation characters that we see in history, what are now called the radical reformers, I think they were right about this. They were right about a lot of things about God and Jesus. They could see that the doctrine of a triune God is no more a New Testament doctrine than is the papacy or transubstantiation. For whatever reason, reformers like Calvin and Luther, they wanted to roll back Catholic developments, but they didn't want to go back farther than about the time of Augustine when it comes to this tripersonal God idea. So they just seemed to not know about, you know, the earlier stage of all this subordinationist stuff. Dr. Cole, in his closing statement, mentioned that Thomas, he says to the risen Jesus, my Lord and my God. Wow, isn't he saying that Jesus is God? No, I don't think so. I think he's presented there as being the first one to give the typical New Testament confession, which is that there's one God, the Father, and there's also the one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. This one God and one Lord confession is what you see in 1 Corinthians 8. It's what you see in Ephesians. And so he's saying, my Lord, that's the risen Jesus that he recognizes. And he's saying, my God, he's recognizing that God is at work in him. You have to look at what went earlier in the gospel, according to John, to understand this interpretation. There's a lot of talk about God being in Christ, God working through Christ. It's the Father in me who does the works and so on. And so just, you know, whenever you see a passage in the Bible where someone says, hey, it's saying that Jesus is God himself, it's saying that Jesus just is God, you know, just look in the rest of the chapter and you'll see that somewhere else the author is presupposing that there's a difference between God and And the Son of God, or the one God and the one Lord. It's in the same chapter that John tells you his main point, which is that Jesus is God's Christ, not that he's God, not that he's a God man. It's in this same chapter that Jesus says, uh, Don't hold on to me, for I have yet to ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Okay, so we know that there's one who is your Father and my Father, and our God and Jesus' God. Right, that's the whole rest of the book. There's one God, the Father. The Holy Spirit is a less clear issue, I think, than whether God is a trinity or the Father alone. But you have to keep in mind two basic undeniable facts about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. One fact is you know that things that aren't persons can be personified, right? We talked about this earlier when we talked about God's wisdom being personified as a lady, almost like a goddess kind of figure. But yeah, you don't take it literally if it's personification. So you have to keep that in mind. The Holy Spirit, for sure, is heavily personified in a handful of passages, but notice that the Holy Spirit has no personal name. It's just God's Spirit, so it's like Dale's Spirit, or Dr. Cole's Spirit, or Marlin's Spirit. It's not an additional person, it's the one whose spirit it is. And notice that the Holy Spirit is never worshipped. So the Holy Spirit is conspicuously absent from, say, Revelation 4 and 5 that we looked at. If the Holy Spirit is a co-equal divine person, you'd expect the Holy Spirit to be worshipped just as much as the Father and the Son. In fact, if God's triune, you'd expect to see the triune God worshipped. You don't see the triune God worshipped. Again, you see what really fits well with a Unitarian Christian theology. You see, the Father is the ultimate and the main object of worship, but also the risen and exalted Jesus Christ is worshipped as well to the glory of God the Father. I know in some of the things Dr. Cole said that you know he was concerned, and again, I think this is typical for evangelicals, including myself, before I got really deep into this topic, you don't want to say that Jesus is a mere man, right? You don't want to say that Jesus is just some kind of neat guy, just some great teacher, you know, someone on the level of Muhammad, God forbid, or the Buddha, or whatever you think the great teachers of the human race are. Right. Yeah, Jesus is supposed to be unique in the New Testament. But his uniqueness doesn't depend on his having a divine nature in the New Testament. It's a big freaking deal to be God's Messiah in the New Testament. And that's his uniqueness. That's the main thesis of all four Gospels, is that Jesus is God's Messiah. And that's what they mean when they call him the Son of God. They don't mean to say that he has the same essence. So again, you know, the New Testament repeatedly says that Jesus... Not just that he calls the Father God, but that the Father is his God. He's under a God. Indeed, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 28 that, When all things are subjected to him, subjected to Jesus, like all the things in the creation, all the other things, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, right, that's to God, that's to the Father, so that God may be all in all. Difference of function, yes. But it's more than a difference of function because the New Testament tells us explicitly what these two are. It doesn't say they're two divine persons. It doesn't say it's God and a God man. It says that the Father is the one true God. It says that Jesus is a man who told you the truth that he heard from God, and of course, you know he's the man who's the mediator between God and and humans generally. So, I just think that New Testament theology stands on its own two feet. I think it makes sense. I don't think it needs help from incarnation theory. I don't think it needs help from this 4th century idea of a tripersonal God. I don't think it needs help from these extra biblical ideas like that to be worshipped, you have to have a divine essence, or to forgive sins, you have to have a divine essence, or to uh, provide atonement, you have to have a divine essence. You just don't see these taught in Scripture, and you don't see them assumed. So, It seems better to me that we go back, not just to the words of Scripture, but to the ideas of Scripture, because they make sense by themselves. Thank you for your time. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Cole and I field some questions submitted by the online audience.
2: You fellas, once again, for your closing remarks. All right, so now we're going to go into a Q&A session. Question for Dr. Tuggy If the Son is not God, why the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is distinct from the Ancient of Days and described as a divine being?
1: Yeah, so the Ancient of Days is God in that vision. The one like a human being is brought into his presence and given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And um, look, this is all consistent with what you see in the New Testament, which is that Jesus is a man, and now that he's been raised and made immortal, he's been exalted to God's right hand. So, there's nothing in the phrase, a one like a son of a man, which requires a divine being rather than a man. You can look like a man and be a man, and that's how the New Testament authors take it.
0: Yeah, I would just say that in that Daniel 7 passage, without having it in front of me, when it talks about the Son of Man being presented before the Ancient of Days, obviously there's a distinction between the Father and the Son, but it talks about that vision, assuming that that's something that either is an eternity past or something that will happen in the future at the exaltation. But I think that what that passage clearly shows is the distinction between the two persons, Father, the Ancient of Days. Son of Man, Jesus, and that because they are in that um, relationship with one another, it doesn't explicitly teach, because it's prophetic literature in Daniel, that it's explicitly Jesus. I think we assume that because in Revelation chapter 1, John harkens back to that language. And I think if you take John 1 and look back at Daniel 7, you see that Jesus is the Son of Man and the Father is the Ancient of Days. And I would just say in Revelation 4 and 5, you do have the Holy Spirit there, personified, if you'd like, in apocalyptic language with the seven spirits of God from the throne. So I think in Revelation 4, you see the Father, you see the Spirit. In Revelation 5, you see the Son. So you do see a trinity even in Revelation 4 and 5. I know that's a long answer that probably didn't really answer that question, but I wanted to at least get that in, that the Holy Spirit was in Revelation. Dr. Cole, if the
2: persons share eternality why does a son say he lives because of the father john 657 6, 6, and paul says a son died in romans five ten.
0: we have to also remember that just because the son shares eternality with the father he came in the flesh at a point in time now that's where john one fourteen says the word became flesh and dwelt among us so in his incarnation in his human form he is fully man and fully god and he did die as a man experiencing full death the way we would but at the same time is um god so just because jesus shares eternality in eternity past there is a point in time that aorist tense verb in john 1 14 in john 1 All those verb tenses are in the imperfect. Was. Imperfect is the continual action in the past. John uses that continual action in the past to show that Jesus always was. Then he switches to the aorist tense in John 1.14. At a point in time, Jesus took on flesh. And so in his flesh, he is, in a sense, dependent on the Father. Um, He's anointed by the Spirit. Just because he lives in the flesh as fully God and fully man, and he dies doesn't mean that he ceases to share the essence of God.
2: Okay, Dr. Tunny, thoughts?
1: Uh, Just two quick points. I claim that, and I don't think any uh, exception to this has been shown, I claim that it's not a New Testament teaching that the Son eternally existed. There's not even any passage that obviously sounds like this. The closest I've ever heard is Jesus being called Alpha and Omega, but I just think that's a way of asserting uniqueness. It's not a New Testament concern to say that Jesus always existed. That became an obsession during the Nicene theology controversy, the so-called Arian controversy, in the in the middle of the three hundreds, and that's why scripture writers just don't spend any time on it. Look, that the Son died is a huge problem. God, we know, is immortal, and you can't kill God. But the Son died. If you just say that the Son experienced death, well, fine. But it says more than that, right? It says that he literally died. Uh, I don't mean that he necessarily ceased to exist, but I just mean that he died. If you want to, you know, hear more about that topic, I did a podcast called Tis Mystery, All the Immortal Dies, quoting the line from uh, the Wesley hymn. But, you know, the New Testament view is that you can't kill God, but you you could kill Jesus before he was made immortal, because he's not God. He's the Son of God, right? If you don't have all the divine attributes, you're not divine in the way that the Father is divine.
2: Okay next question. Dr. Dell, what is your exegesis of 1 John 5 7? 7 5-7? There are three that bear witness. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Colossians 1 15 through 17 equals Jesus. I know he's asking um, you to exegete. Exeg- yeah. <laughs> <You> know, <so laughs> I, I think seconds. you would require more than 30 seconds to do so, obviously. But, yeah,
1: well, uh, no, I you mean, know. I may be able to do it in 30 seconds, so First John 5, 7, I'm happy to say, doesn't mention the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's an interpolation that is taken out of all modern Bibles. It's only in the King James. And uh, Unitarian Christians back in the 1700s and 1800s kind of were people leading the charge on the textual criticism that showed this. Yeah, it's not talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look in the New Revised Standard or the NIV, translations like that. Colossians 1, um, 15 through 17. Very briefly, I think all of this passage here is about the current status of the risen and exalted Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he's got that primacy of place. For in him, all things in heaven and earth were created, things visible and invisible. I don't think it's the Genesis creation. I think it's the new creation because he goes on to tell you what those things are thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, all those things. He's talking about Jesus like reordering the earthly and the heavenly powers in his work and his death and resurrection. He himself is before all things. He's the head of the body. The whole passage is about the, the current status of the exalted Jesus. This is not adding a second creator to the one creator of the new and old Testament, which is the father.
2: Okay. Dr. Cole, what are your thoughts?
0: I agree with Dr. Tuggy on the First John passage. I think that's a, a textual variant that the King James puts the the Trinity in there, so I do agree with that. But on the Colossians 1, 15-17, that term firstborn, when we hear that term, we think of first created, first came into existence, but it's actually the Greek term "prototokos," which is a position of title. And I would disagree right. with Dr. Tuggy. I think that by him, all things were created. I don't think there's any mention there of a new creation or a reordering. I think that at the creation of the heavens and the earth, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all those things were created on the first day of creation. And I think that Jesus there is the agent of creation. The Father is also the agent of creation. The Holy Spirit is also the agent of creation. Genesis 1-5. It's just a way of showing again that Jesus is sharing the eternality and power of God as the creator of all things.
2: All right. Next question. This for you, Dr. Tuggy. In Revelation 21, why is Jesus declaring himself God? Starting in verse 5 and says in verse 7, quote, I will be his God and he will be my son. Close quote.
1: The one who's seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new write this, these words are trustworthy and true, it's done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the thirsty, I will give uh, water as a gift from the spring of the water of life, those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. I guess I just think that's God speaking there, and we know that this author distinguishes between Jesus and God, because it says that the Father is Jesus' God repeatedly in the early chapters, And you have God in Revelation 4 being worshipped, and then Jesus being exalted and brought into the scene in fulfillment of Daniel 7 in chapter 5. So, I don't think the author is confusing Jesus and God here. I think this is God speaking. That's the one who see it on the throne.
0: Um, I think if you look at Revelation 4 and 5, in Revelation 4, God the Father is seated on the throne. In Revelation 5, you see Jesus... And the Father seated on the throne. And then towards the end of Revelation 21 and 22, uh, you see them both sharing the throne, which again shows that that eternality. And so I think it is – this is the first time God the Father has spoken in a long time at the end of Revelation when he says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Um, When he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I think that's God the Father speaking. But I think earlier in the chapter, Jesus is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega. So I think that both God the Father says, I'm Alpha the Omega. I think Jesus the Son says, I'm Alpha the Omega. They both share the throne, which again shows that they're two distinct persons, but yet share the same essence as, as God. I think John is clear in his Gospel. He's clear in his epistles. He's clear in Revelation all the way through of teaching that co-equality and co-eternality between the Father and the Son.
2: All right, question for you, is our hope in following Jesus Christ to walk with Yahweh like he did? Jesus walked way better than Adam. If that's not our hope, what is?
1: You want to take this one first, Dr. Cole?
2: Sure, I would say,
0: I'm trying to understand the question. Are you saying that Adam failed where Jesus succeeded? I'm a Reformed theologian, so I believe in the covenant of works, in that Adam failed the test in the garden, and because of his failure, all of us were plunged into depravity. And so Jesus, as the second Adam, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 5, came and lived the perfect life that we could never live. And because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness and lived the perfect life we could never live, when we trust Him for salvation, our sins are credited to Jesus and His righteousness is credited to us. And because of that transaction, God can declare us legally with the verdict of not guilty. And so in God's eyes, we are justified by faith because of what christ did as the second adam and that gives us a right standing before god and then in sanctification we live out that reality by following jesus through the power of the holy spirit i'm assuming that's what they're asking but i'm not sure if i answered that correctly
2: okay dr tuggy
1: yeah, i'm not exactly sure what they're getting at, but you know i would point out that to walk with yahweh you can't be yahweh you need to be someone else And I agree that Jesus is presented as the second Adam who perfectly obeyed and indeed is a model for us to imitate. Once I gave a presentation, which ended up becoming a published paper called Jesus as an Exemplar of Faith in the New Testament. And it's actually interesting. It's a very clear theme, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels, but also in a few other places like Hebrews, that Jesus put his faith and trust in God. He had to do that because he was a limited being, he was not all knowing, all powerful immune to temptation, you know, he could be afraid, he could be tempted, he he could feel despair even when he was about to lose his life. And so, yeah, I I do think our hope is to follow Jesus into self-sacrificial obedience. And, you know, Paul is really holding out that possibility for us in Philippians 2. He's not, I don't think, talking about incarnation, but he is talking about the self-sacrificing service of the earthly man jesus and he's saying you do likewise and notice that god raised and exalted him well god will raise and exalt believers too to rule and reign with christ that's kind of what paul is driving at uh, and part of what he's doing in that book so yes this is our hope and uh, i think it presupposes that jesus is not god but a human who's the son of god
2: all right this is our last question dr tuggy In John 12, 41, John says specifically, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. What passage is he referring to? And does this passage show Isaiah seeing the glory of Jesus? Isn't it Isaiah 6?
1: No, I don't think it is. I think the text is referring in part to Isaiah, uh, the suffering servant passages there. When John talks about Jesus' glory, I think he's talking about what happens at the end of the book when he is gloriously killed, but then resurrected and, ex- and exalted. So there are different passages in Isaiah being referred to there. And I would just point out that, look, no character who's a good guy, not one of the empty-headed uh, Jewish opponents that's always missing the point and thinking Jesus is saying something else. You know, do I have to go back into my mother? Do I have to become a cannibal? Are you saying that you're God himself? No, None of the good guys interprets this as, oh, Jesus is saying that he's Yahweh himself. And so I just think this is an interest that later readers are imposing on the text. There's nothing compelling about that interpretation. That Isaiah saw the pre-human Jesus on God's throne. Even if it was what he was saying, you would just get pre-existence out of it. You know, Jesus being a visible Yahweh or something. Uh, a godlike being representing God in ancient times, you wouldn't get that Jesus uh, has the divine essence or is a second person of the Trinity or anything like that. So I don't really think it's a germane text for this debate.
0: Yeah, I do agree that John is referencing Isaiah 6, that vision of Yahweh on the throne. And we have to remember that in John chapter 4, Jesus teaches that God is spirit, and those who worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. So, if Isaiah saw a literal figure on the throne, it had to be a pre-incarnate Christ because God the Father is spirit. And so, I think it is, it was a pre-incarnate Christ as Yahweh on the throne that Isaiah saw in chapter 6. And I think John is making that reference to Jesus by, again, linking back the idea that before Abraham, I was, I am. All the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John point back to Exodus 3:15, where Moses hears from the burning bush, I am that I am. John's always taking us back to the imagery of Jesus being the I am, Jesus being Yahweh in the flesh back to Exodus 3:15 where Moses heard from the burning bush God Yahweh say I am that I am and then Jesus using those seven I am statements in the gospel of John to keep pointing us back to that. So I agree with the interpretation that it is Isaiah 6. All right.
1: So what did you think? Did Dr. Cole make a convincing case that if you believe in the teachings of the Bible, you therefore must believe that God is a Trinity? Honestly, I don't think that he gave any such argument. Upon reflection, Dr. Cole thought that he didn't really say all that he needed to in this dialogue. This is a common hangover after a debate. You know, you always think of a clever answer, you know, when you wake up the next morning. So, yeah, I didn't say everything that I needed to say either. So he decided to revisit this dialogue on his podcast. On the next episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'll respond to some select portions of his follow-up. Thanks again to host Marlon Wilson. You can find a link to his show The Gospel Truth on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. This week's thinking music has again been Mount Fuji by Time Crawler 82. And on that same blog post, we also have a link where you can listen to or download that entire track.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.